At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields relating to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of our important issues of our times. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how to save your own. Today, we're chatting with our seed expert, Bill McDorman, as he shares some seed wisdom and discusses thoughts and concerns that might occupy the minds of those of us who are saving seeds. Welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the urban farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. I am here with Bill McDorman from the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Welcome, Bill. Hello, Greg. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, doing this once again. My gosh, I think we're entering our fourth year of doing these. So uh, I love that we get together and chat once a month. Yeah, really helps me understand why I got into this in the first place. You know, it's a nice remind. It's a nice reminder, you know, yeah. and our friendship is, is deep and long and we just keep coming up with interesting things. You know, I learn something every time we do this. So, yeah. And, you know, I love, we love the questions. If you've got spe- even really specific questions out there about something you're working on that has something to do with seeds or the seed world, feel free to write those in. You know, that's sometimes that's the best part of one of these shows. Oh, exactly. And, uh, my, and I finally figured out the other day, Greg, that my favorite answer to a question that somebody has for me now is, I don't know. <laughs> or it's you know? Well, you know, it's just what that means is that it's an adventure. You know, I get to go and learn something new. Oh, yeah. You know, that... You know, we've both of us have been around long enough to know where to look for the answers to a lot of things, but there's still so much to learn. And so I love saying, I don't know. You know, so challenge us tonight with questions we don't know. Right. It would be fun. Beautiful. So what are we digging into tonight? Well, I would thought actually my wife, Belle, and I were talking and she came up with a pretty, pretty neat idea. You know, to think big for a minute about what it takes to change this entire seed paradigm that we're living in. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know you took on the job of changing the whole food system, that you were going to be the person responsible, you know. I am. Trying to make, I know. (laughs) I am. That's my job. That's your job. And so, and I got involved with seeds in 1979 around the same thing. It was so apparent then 
that industrial agriculture was on a track that yeah. was wrong. You know, and and some people say, well, you know, how do you know? Using words like wrong are really strong, but mm-hmm. I mean, it was destroying the underlying diversity that that made you know industrial agriculture possible. And so, how can you how can you do that and last? And yeah. I think what you know, I was I was trying to think about my life and and how I got to where I am, and you know, I. I all I came within I think 48 days of having to go to the Vietnam War. You know, my draft number wow. was 32. My my friends were going and 48 days after my 18th birthday, the uh war ended. Nixon announced he was bringing the troops home. So I was just lucky, but I had to live in the dorms with guys that came back from that. And that made me start to question a lot of different things and that I'm just a child of that era and when I tried to find seeds from my own garden, when I finally had one in, uh, when I bought a little house and went to college, I just wanted, I started asking questions about that. What, what are the best seeds? How do we do this in the right way? And I guess that sent me on this long adventure. It was just a simple question really that tipped me into this. And so I thought we could just talk a little bit about that. And people have questions about, you know, their journey along or want to shout something mm-hmm. out about their journey along these lines or ask me questions about mine. That would be, that's okay. Perfect. So I want to, you, you mentioned our seed paradigm and the word wrong. So why don't you distinguish the seed paradigm that we're talking about so that everybody, and, and don't, you know, don't go on for 10 minutes, go on for two minutes about what's the seed paradigm that you're talking about. And that goes to the history piece, I think, doesn't it? It does. I think, you know, the, the easiest way to describe it, and it's taken me a long time. I keep, you know, refining how I, my elevator speech about this, so to speak. But, you know, the most powerful things seeds represent are their ability to adapt wherever you take them. You know, all of our food, is, and people hear me say this over and over, came from wild plants. And the reason we have all the different kinds of squash and beans and corn and maybe 30,000 different varieties of wheat, you know, Mm -hmm. over the last 10,000 years is that people took the same seeds from the same plants almost to different parts of the world and saved them. And they learned, and those plants adapted both to the environments where they were being planted and saved, you know, through the generations and the cultures and the taste that people saved them for. And so that's what, you know, that's the essence of the power of what seeds represent. And so versus our our modern industrial paradigm, which says, no, we are not going to do that anymore. We're going to take the breeding and the changing of seeds in-house into laboratories with guys in white coats, and we're only going to have a handful of people doing the plant breeding instead of millions of people doing it wherever they're growing things. And those few people, you know, those few seed breeders now and just a handful of chemical corporations are going to produce seeds not that adapt everywhere, but seeds that will produce plants for the highest profit in the high, most, in the highest profitable areas. And so that paradigm is what has helped tip the scales against diversity right. and why you, you hear us say things like we've lost so much of it. Yeah, got it. So one of the things that you wanted uh, to kind of touch on tonight was the history of seeds and how we got here. You want to dive into that? Well, you know, this is becoming a, uh, a complex subject now. In our, yeah, I'm happy to say in some ways, but in some ways it's been painful. 
and I know Leanne's listening to this, and we've been going through this in our seed schools. And what I, what I mean by that is that, you know, if you want to be honest, and I think Dr. Gary Nabin taught me this first or really sat me down and made me understand it, is that the seeds we have left that we're going to need, that we can save, that are adapted to different areas that are higher in nutrition, that, that peasants have all over the world, the land races, those were all mainly created by indigenous women. Mm. They were the ones, they were the sea keepers, by and large. Not always, you know, but uh-huh. you can generalize. And, and so we are hugely in debt to that system. As I point out in my seed schools, that's, it was 238 generations, not just, wow. you know, years. These are generations that it took to bring us corn from Teosinte, you know, a wild tropical grass, basically. And most of that work was done by, you know, indigenous women. And so, you know, when in our seed schools, we talk about the history of seeds and we talk about Thomas Jefferson and we talk about James L. Reed, a bunch of white guys. And that's only the very end of it, the modern history part of it. I mean, and some of that was really possible in that it made, you know, a a self-reliant farming to get set up in the young United States for its first 150 years and maybe survive as a nation. But if that's a really short period of time, you know, with the exclamation point at the end is that the system that came out of that has destroyed maybe 75 to 90 percent of the diversity that we once had. Or more. And that diversity, or more, and that diversity that we're actually going to need now more than ever, you know, to face climate change. And so, mm-hmm. so talking about the histories, you know, be, taking on a whole new world. How do we do that responsibly? How do we honor the people who really were responsible for allowing us to have these seeds in the first place? They're real gifts. And then what is the responsibility that we have for the future? And this gets, you know, tied up in all sorts of interesting conversations, you know, sometimes around our modern Native American tribes, Uh you know, who don't feel respected enough, say, when you're growing Hopi corn or Zuni or whatever, you know, and there's lots of questions about that, whether we need to get permission to do that, whether they want us to be growing their varieties. There's the other, the biological side that, that worries me, and that is we're not going to have enough diversity as it is, or it's going to be close. And so that all of us, you know, need to honor the tribes that gave us these seeds, but we all need to realize that we together now are in, are, are the formation or the foundation of the tribes of the future. And we need to go back to the old ways of growing and saving seeds in every eco niche and every culture on the planet in order to readapt and recreate new diversity. And that's going to take all of our seeds. And so I hate to see boundaries being, you know, talked about. Oh, these are ours. You know, the, you know, I understand the sacredness of it, but the biological reality underlying that is that maybe we all need to share again you know, quickly, if we're all going to survive together. And so these are the kinds, I don't have answers to these questions, but I see these discussions coming up more and more, you know, as we go on with our seed schools. Yeah. Well, and really the question is, are seeds really ownable? And, you know, if the Native Americans are claiming that they're theirs, then they're claiming that they own them. And so it's a that's a slippery slope, I think, for everybody. Yeah, you know, and then you get twisted arguments like, um, can we, maybe as Native Americans, we should, uh, I've heard this argument, we should own them, even patent them to keep 
the big corporations and industrial agriculture from taking away yeah. our seeds and, and patenting them themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and that it's like, you know, that and that never felt good to me because so we're going to act as badly in a sense as the as the people that you know that we fear in order to try to save what we think is sacred. You know, I don't. I, as I said, I'm I'm sure there are we can use legal and marketing tools on all sorts of levels you know to get down the road and i and i don't pretend to know all the answers my own personal feeling is seeds are not ownable they right. never have been ownable and never right. should be ownable they're, they're sacred and they should be shared responsibly when people need them around you mm-hmm. and i subscribe wholly and i applied this even when i was at native search seed search and the director is that if if somebody around you needs seeds, you give them to right. them. And if and when they can, they return twice as many. Mm-hmm. It's an old, old, old notion, especially, you know, as Vandana says in India, and that's how, she, you know, they've got over 105 local seed, they call them seed banks, seed libraries, that right. are actually supplying seeds to the farmers in those regions. And that's how they run. It's a tremendously uh, abundant system that can be set up that's community-based. And that's what I believe in. And well, and I... And, and I, I would love to see us all join together, all the people, all the people of this, these new tribes of the future to come together and take on this responsibility together. And mm-hmm. I guess that's what I work on. Yeah. Well, you know, I grow all kinds of things here at the Urban Farm that I, you know, when people come on tours, I just share the seeds. And there's just so much abundance in nature. I have this conversation pretty much every time I talk with people in the lecture situation about where lack lives, L-A-C-K. And I'm a big believer that the only place that lack lives is between our ears. Because when I look at nature, right now we're harvesting cowpeas here at the urban farm. And I'll bet you I come up with 10 pounds of them just growing wild on the property here. Yeah. Yeah. Seeds, especially seeds, are so incredibly abundant. Well, and I think that's the opposite of ownership. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why, you know, People, in order to think about ownership, you have to come out of a world of scarcity. Right. I need, we need to own this. We need to control this. And and you're right. Seeds are the teacher for that. They are so mind-blowingly abundant that when you're around them for a while, you know, it's just like, we'll outgrow that, I hope. You know, I hope that yeah. becomes part, part of this uh, mantra that leads us back into seeing the abundance in all parts of our lives, not yeah. just the garden. So we have a yeah. uh, we, we have a statement uh, from Randy from in Newburgh. He said, uh, and this is pertinent to what we're talking about here. One way we do it as an American Native American couple owning a seed company is to decolonize the seed names, like Blue Hubbard becomes Blue Carib. Hmm. I like you know I as people have heard me on this show before and I'm getting a bit of a reputation for being an almost an anarchist as far as the rules concerning naming seeds I'm wholly in favor of that. Yeah. I think that we should make up new names for our things wherever we are. And and somebody somebody said, "Well, Bill, whoa, 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 man, you're just going to cause a big mess. There's going to be people all over growing the same things and won't even know they're growing the same things." You know, and that's just going to, you know, mess things up. How are we going to keep everything straight? And then how are we going to breed things true? You know, and it was like your answer. I go, well, you know, I was out in the garden today and I didn't see any true 
I, you know, right. it's not out there. You know, I see nature, I see a mess, I see evolution, I see abundance, you know, but I don't see these concepts, you know, these platonic ideals that are being applied. We, why keep things straight? And, you know, I laughingly say that's what our university should be for. After we make a mess of all the names of everything we're growing by taking them back and decolonizing them and choosing our own sacred names for what we're doing, because if we do that, we'll take care of them, right? There's just something powerful about that. Yeah. Uh, if we do that, then then someday if somebody wants to come back through and line everything up and put it back into categories, and maybe we have to do this because we'll have to scale up some portion of the agriculture again to feed hungry people. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to industrial sized farms that are done ecologically. In fact, we probably have to do that. Yeah, and that's going really to take need. uniformity and and that's going to take modern breeding. I've never been more respectful of that. And that's going to take knowing what varieties are which. But we'll we'll let those guys do that. <laughs> Our job is to create diversity and abundance yeah. and share the wealth of this whole thing and get people excited and passionate. Again, about doing it. That's what we've lost. That's how we'll get the 90% of our diversity back. Mm-hmm. And that's the foundation. That's what we have to do. Well, and plus, when we, you know, when we grow things out and save the seeds and grow them out again, say I were to grow basil here. Basil grows wild in the farm, in the yard here. And, uh, you know, putting it in a bag and calling it urban farm basil, you know, it, it kind of creates a demand or a, a name for that particular product that brings people back to local. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And if you if you look through the whole history of, especially from the 1860s on in the United States, that's how all the names were chosen. Mm-hmm. It was to make things popular or to honor family members, those sorts of things. I would love to hear more stories of, about how the original Native American varieties were and first peoples variety were named and what they were named for because i think that there's some huge learning that we could all have about place and about Mm -hmm. how to act in that place and to care for the seeds i'm sure it was done very sacred you know in a sacred manner in many cases and uh was powerful in in keeping the traditions and the rituals alive that kept the seeds alive so yeah i'm this is going to be good you know as we go on you know the only real rules you know, Greg, I just wanted to add this real quick. The only mm-hmm. real rules that we've had in the United States about naming new varieties and releasing them, you know, that I, I think the best, and I won't say the only, but one of the best examples came out of our um, experiment stations that were set up to actually grow out varieties of uh, vegetables and fruits and things that were brought to each region of the country, many times originally by uh, refugees, you know, and our immigrants, populations mm-hmm. that always brought their own seeds with them. But then, you know, around the turn of the 20th century, USDA even set up a program to go internationally. They sent plant ex- and seed explorers out all over the world mm-hmm. to bring back stuff. And then they passed it out on our land-grant universities. They yep. tried to find climates that were similar. And then those were actually grown out, and that seed increased and improved at experiment stations, and then they could be released to the public if and only if they were better. They they had to show some quantitative, qualitative yeah. difference that improved them. They weren't just about, oh, we found this, let's let this go. 
there was there was a conscious effort to make things better. And when the first plant patenting legislation was passed in 1930 in the United States, there was a little clause in there that said that we want to go beyond that now. We want to be able legally, companies, to release seeds that aren't better. I'm paraphrasing the, the original, you know, legislation and the wording, and but that's essentially what it did. They wanted to be able to make up new names for things, even though they weren't different or better, for marketing purposes. Mm. That's where that whole idea came from, from the very industries that are now monopolizing and and setting up a system that um, does not honor diversity. Those are the guys that now sometimes are the ones who think everything needs to be straight and names should be, you know, very properly and only properly given to new varieties. You know, what is it? Distinct, uniform, and stable, I think, is their mantra. And I just think it's ironic that they're the ones that broke down that barrier in the first place. And so the peasants, the people that are growing in their seeds underneath this university system all over this country, this elegant system that we had, they've always just grown and saved and named their own seeds. And I, that's the, the practice that I'd like to see us return to. And before I leave the subject, it, yeah, if people want to learn more about this, you know, Jack Kloplinberg's book, First the Seed, will give you the most complete sort of uh, political economic history mm-hmm. of how we got into what I call this mess. But also lovingly points out how we can get out of it so yeah wow so another another mention from randy from newberg thank you randy by the way for reaching out uh it says in our traditional native ways the seeds are not owned but we just want to know that they are being used in a good way maybe the problem is commodifying of sacred are there ways to honor the sacredness and sell the seeds good good point i don't know that selling the seeds is the issue, and maybe you can give me some uh, input, Randy, as well. I don't know that selling the seeds is uh, the issue. I think it's claiming ownership of the seeds. Those are two distinct issues, are they not? Yeah, I think so. Muffin Burgess, or Martha Burgess, we lovingly call her Muffin, is an icon of... uh, Tucson. In Tucson. And she, she was on the board at Native Seed Search when I was there. And we were having this discussion, and she said something that was really... Really interesting because Native Seed Search is a nonprofit. It has seeds from 50, more than 55 indigenous tribes throughout the Southwest. Yeah. And it was selling seeds as part of it and still does. And so that question would come up and it was a serious discussion. And I thought she answered it better, at least, you know, within the confines of what was going on there at the time. And she just said, just consider the seeds sacred. They are not and cannot be sold. And I took that to heart so that when people came to Native Seeds or asked for seeds from the tribes, I would, they could always have them mm-hmm. if that's what they really wanted. However, we did charge, you know, to fill an order and to mail it. And so all that money was to, to pay for the system around the seeds. Right. Right. For the shipping and handling and, and Betsy, who's still there, you know, filling orders and the space, you know, the store and the space and all the things it takes to be able to do that so that people can just get on the Internet or get on their phone and get these seeds. I mean, that would not be possible without a system that has some money involved in it, unfortunately, I think, in, in our modern society. But that's how it is. That's yeah. the reality we live in. And so that allowed me at least, you know, to go to sleep at night 
and think about, you know, a future when we don't even have to have that, that we'll have these, you know, more community-based systems where that we can share seeds more directly. And that'll be more powerful, you know, as far as creation of diversity and adaptation anyway, I think. And so, but we're in a transition period and everybody needs new diversity probably. I'm, right. I'm wholly in favor of people, you know, if you want to buy them from cat, whatever it takes, but find new stuff, bring it into your life and your yard and start finding out what works best for you, especially in this age of diminished diversity. So, yeah. so thank you. You know, I would love to go on, uh, Aunt Randy, and have a discussion about how we, how we can craft better language around all of this. I, because personally, I, you know, I, I had my own sort of epiphany and I, I really don't want to be involved in money and seeds at all. You know, being around money, money and seeds, which even goes beyond selling them. I just, you know, I just don't want to do that, um, with what I, with the days I have left with my life. So, yeah. Understand the reality that a lot of people, the way that we can get a lot of really great seeds out and, de- and develop a lot of consciousness in our communities is to have small bioregional seed companies. And I've always been in favor of helping people start those. So, yeah. Sorry. Greg. Randy also says sharing and barter is always better than selling. Absolutely agree. He says, but dot, 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 we still live in a capitalist society. I think one of the solutions here, and we do the Great American Seed Up once a year here in Phoenix, where we blow out an insane amount of seeds really, really inexpensively. And the purpose for, I think we sold, what, 2,000 pounds of seeds this last year in bulk? Yes. Something like that. And the point is, is and we edu- we do education with it. Our, really, our point is to jumpstart our local seed economy here, so that people are planting seeds, raising them up, collecting the seeds, and sharing them. So, but I think we have to have a a thriving local seed growing culture before we can actually get to having seeds available for everybody. Yeah. Exactly. No, I've, it's a complex place to be, you know? Yeah. 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 You know, and and the way I look at it, I studied medieval history a bit when I was in college. And, you know, if it was like Gregor Mendel, you know, was a really great example, the father of modern genetics, you know, he joined the church. He was Father Gregor Mendel. He Mm -hmm. lived in a monastery. Why? Because he was really smart and he wanted free time and he wanted an intellectual life. But he was not born into a wealthy enough family to really join the university class, as it was called, where he, in Belgium, where he grew up. And so the only real game in town for him was to join the church. It was the only option in, in much the same way that we talk about, you know, a modern business. It really is our church these days. It's the only real way game in town to move yourself up and down any kind of socioeconomic ladder or to even try to survive sometimes with your family. And so you have to tap into that system the way he had to tap into the church during his day. And so, you know, this too will pass probably. You know, and we have a lot of young young people especially and even young politicians now talking about that. So it's kind of exciting. So for those of you out there on the live event tonight, we do have, there's a bunch of you. Welcome. Thanks for being here. And, uh, you know, shoot us some questions. I know you, I know you've got some questions. So shoot them over to us. Um, we have got a question from Danielle from Scottsdale. Can you talk 
a bit about best practices for collecting seed in the wild? Ooh, good question. Yeah, we can talk about that. And that's been part of my 40-year journey, about 10 years after I started my little bioregional seed company, High Altitude Gardens. I was going through the numbers one night, and I was shocked when I looked and found out that half of my seed sales were from wild mm-hmm. flowers and native native grasses. Yeah. And I never designed, you know, I got into this to help save food, you know, diversity that was disappearing, that that big idea. And all of a sudden, I was doing wild stuff, and it just sort of got pulled into it. And I think it's a really important thing for all of us to recognize is that, you know, once you're into seeds, you start looking around, you know, why draw a distinction between your, your domesticated plants and the wild ones around you, especially when there's so much medicine and wild food and and other helpful things. And so... So learning how to uh, collect the seeds from those is really an important thing to do. And it will make you a better seed saver in your own garden. So um, number one, some of the things that you want to think about. Number one is that all flowering plants produce seeds. All of them. So whenever you see a flower, just start learning the plant life around you throughout your whole growing season. Mm -hmm. And start remembering the ones that flower or whatever. So number two, you don't have to know what it is to collect the seeds. If you think about it, our whole taxonomy, how we divide the plant world up and know what the names are is because of the flowers and the flower structures. That's just what we've used to differentiate all the plants. And those flowers for many plants just aren't there for very long. And so for 90% of the time, for most of the plants, if you're out in the wild looking, there's no flower. You don't even know what it is. And so it, it can take you years. I mean, I walked in my my area where I collected seeds um, every summer for 25 years. Uh-huh. And I was still learning a lot of the plants and what the seed their seeds looked like. And so I started shortcutting the whole thing by just collecting seeds whenever I found them. I knew every plant produced seeds. And so I would start picking pods. I'd dig down through things. Sometimes there were little black shiny things. Sometimes there were big brown ones or flaky or or parachutes or whatever they were. And I would try to be really careful and and remember what the plant looked like, you know, and, and some information about where I gathered it and when. But what I learned is that you could bring those home and plant them. And that sometimes even years later, they would finally bloom and you could identify them. So you can buy into these cycles without mm-hmm. even knowing what they are. That's real, That was really an important thing for me to learn. And, you know, the third most important thing I think I learned is that I had a lot of guilt about doing it. You know, in a sense, you're going out into nature and it's free and, you know, it's the best time I spent. I was in a, my office. I was around phones and, you know, trying to fill orders and stuff. And then I got to go out and collect seeds. And it's so beautiful. And then I was thinking about all the impact that humans have had on the planet. And here I am raping and running again, right? Mm-hmm. Or it could be seen as that. And in fact, I got accused of that sometimes by people. How can you take those things out of nature? Do you have a permit for that or whatever? And so I'm going, <laughs> well, you know, though. Like who's, like who's going to issue you a permit to take seeds from? Well, well, well guess what? They finally um, uh, got a botanist on the national forest, the Satchwood National Forest, where I, where I had been collecting for 25 years, and um, they started um, making it illegal to gather seeds unless you did get a permit. And what that permit uh, required was that you actually give back to them 10% of the seed that you collected, so that they would have it for their own um, reclamation projects. 
Mm-hmm. So the world, and, and now that's something we teach in seed school, wherever, whether you're on private land, you should ask for permission. If you're on public land, you should check with your local BLM office or forest service or national parks or whatever you are, state uh-huh. land, and see if a permit's required now and what their rules are. And if there aren't any, you're going to have to develop your own. I'm just telling you this so you don't feel guilty. How do you know enough is enough? How do you know you're not taking too much in impacting your own environment, this environment that's sacred that you want to help save? Mm -hmm. And so I'll just tell you, over the years, I evolved down to the point where I would never touch more than a third of the plant. In the beginning, it was like half and half. I'll I'll leave half, I'll take half. And then I thought, you know, I don't even deserve that. 30 per, you know, a third. And then I just heard, I was at a conference, the Corbera conference in New Mexico, and there were others there and um, from some of the agencies that are specializing in collecting wild seeds. And their rule now is uh, t- only 20%. Never touch more than 20% of the plants in an yeah. area so that you're sure, more than sure. And I'm in favor of that. Whatever it takes, be respectful. Yeah. So I th- I would say those are the things that are the most important to me about learning to uh to gather seeds and just remember there's you can read in books and you can you know there there's webinars now and trainings I'm sure but this falls into the craft side of being a seed person so what that means to me this is like learning how to harvest and clean seeds really well you'll never nobody will ever really show you how to do it really really well huh. although find an expert if you can and go with them for any of those kinds of activities. But you're going to have to learn to do this yourself by doing it over and over and over again. And you'll just get better and better and better. And some of the time I spent doing that's the best time I spent in the last 40 years. I have to say it was some of the most beautiful and fulfilling um, time I've had in my life is collecting uh, wild native seeds. So Yeah, well, and, you know, once you get the – this is going back to the really the process – a big piece of what I do here at the Urban Farm is I just let things go to seed. Yeah, and, you know, and it's it's really becoming a food forest here because I got parsley and nasturtiums and garlic and onions and basil and oregano that uh, and uh, cowpeas and lettuce that just come back year after year after year with not a whole lot of effort on my part. <laughs> you know, we've been taught that. It takes effort to do everything, and not just effort, but expert effort, right? Mm-hmm. The cult, the cult of expertise. Yeah. And what you're te- what you're telling me is more like what Bill Mollison, who the father of permaculture, said, right? It, if you just get out of the way, if you <laughs> set up a few conditions, if you're smart enough to see what those are, and yeah. you get out of the way, it turns into a food forest. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So. I, you know, I'm a big, big, big proponent that, uh, you know, as Toby always used to say, nature bats last. So we need to stand back and let nature be and work in the flow of nature rather than work against nature. Right. That's Toby Hemingway, the great permaculturist. Do you still have uh, – aren't there some courses? Can people still do the online courses? Oh, you bet. Permaculture City with Toby. In fact, I'm actually – really excited about this. I was on one of my old computers the other day and Toby taught a permaculture design course here a couple of times. I was there. I came to those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we videotaped one of them and I have the videotapes. Mm. 
I don't know how many hours are there, but I'll bet you I have 30 hours worth of Toby teaching. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to make those available for people as well. Oh, my gosh. Please let me know. That'll be right. a real treat. We've got, you know, as I said before, there are people that, for whatever reason, or they got into it early in their life, some people are just naturally talented. Some mm-hmm. people are both, right? Yeah. And they just get further further down the road in these subjects and develop more of their own, you know. The interesting thing about Toby was that he wasn't in permaculture all that long. I know. You know he discovered permaculture in the early 90s. He wrote the best-selling book, Gaia's Garden, on permaculture in early, you know, within a decade about learning permaculture. And, you know, that in itself I call a miracle. How can you find a way in that's simple to tell people? He was a real teacher that way. Yeah. A real beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful teacher. So, you know, I guess the word for, you know, if you want to think about this long journey of uh, devoting your life to seeds. And if you're young and you're listening to this, start now. Mm-hmm. start now 40 years is not enough <laughs> you know you could get projects going now that can change the world if you've got 40 years and it doesn't take a lot of work it, you know sometimes you just get the conditions set up and get started and pay attention right. to yeah. 40 years the way uh dave christensen did with painted mountain corn and he's created one of the world's great corns that will be around for the whole next century i'm sure Mm-hmm. feeding people all over the world. As he said to me, you know, 40 years is not enough. To really, you Now he really wants to work on it, right? Get into it early and then find those real teachers that are out there and devote some of your time and energy and treasure to spending time with them. You know, you can learn more in a day, you know, from somebody like Toby and Larry Santoyo. There's so many. And I've oh, got to spend a a couple of days this summer with John Navazio, who's one of the breeders at Johnny's Selected Seeds, mm-hmm. who's an old friend. Oh, my gosh. His lifetime experience, you yeah. know, about scale and how much time you devote to things and just how clean can you and should you get it? You know, where's that line where it's a waste of time? Just go on. You know, it would take you so long to figure out some of these things. And you just watch someone for a while and you go, oh, okay. Wow, I know how to do that now, way better than I did before. So that would be something else I would say. Start early, find find some masters from time to time, and then just pick a simple a simple path and stay on it, you know, for a long, long time. And that's and we'll all be okay. There'll be such abundance in the people, the seed stewards, we like to call them, the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. These people that have dedicated themselves to growing and saving the seeds to at least one thing in their area and starting to share them again. Yeah. That's all it's going to take. Beautiful. So your friend Dee from Park City, she says, yes. Uh, let's see here. I want to go down to it. She says, yes, Bill, Red Ant is her company. So that's your friend Dee. She says, I understand there are a lot of variables in this question. I am trying to restore the understory of scrub oak stand. There is a pretty good colony of garlic mustard here. It's been mostly gone for three years. I don't know what, maybe it's the scrub oak has been mostly gone for three years. How long does it take for the soil to receive new seed after the allopathic plant has colonized an area? Napweed is an increasing (laughs) problem here as well. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of variables in that. <laughs> you know, so here, here's what I try to do. If you, you know, 
Napweed's a, a real problem. The only effective way that communities, and I'll say this at a community level, have been able to control napweed when um, John Kasha, and I think he's on online also in Ketchum, Idaho, when John and I tried to uh, remove the napweed from the bike path in the Blaine County uh, bike trail system uh-huh. there. Um, and I did quite a bit of research. The only real success came from organizing people to, to actually pull it and get rid of it. You know, so sometimes you have to go to that link. Spraying does not help and does not work. All it does is um, set up the conditions for more pioneer species, which are usually more noxious weeds of the same or different kinds to come in. So mm-hmm. if you're really trying to make something healthy, you know, you're just hitting the reset button every year by spraying. You're just setting up the conditions so you'll have to spray more, you know. And yeah. so why people can't can't get beyond that I, is still a mystery to me because that's seventh grade biology class, right? There's plant right. succession. Once you disturb the soil, you know, the first plants that come in are pioneers. They change it. And then once that's changed and the soil starts to rebuild itself some through all sorts of processes we don't understand, mm-hmm. um, then the secondary plants come in, right? And once those are established and they change it even further, then another whole wave of plants to come in. And sometimes in the West, that those are shrubs even by then and then if there's enough moisture you'll get trees and then a climax community maybe someday and there's also this is a a intense discussion because we may have so destroyed our soil in the west through overgrazing especially and lack of care that we may never get back to the original native climax communities that we once had that being said we yeah and we don't even know in most cases but we can make things better and more healthy in small ways at least i had great success in doing that over 25 years and Mm -hmm. i did it by by number one rule don't try to put back everything that was there because some of those are secondary and tertiary plants and they're not going to work after you've disturbed soil anyway the conditions have to be right for them and you don't really want the noxious weeds the pioneer species to come in and so you're in a bit of a pickle that's why I told people never disturb, you disturb land if you don't have to. I mean, if you have to pull the napweed or have to do something, then do it. But then as quickly as possible, try to find the best and most drought tolerant secondary plants to put in. And to, so that you skip. So I found that sometimes I was able to skip that, that really early pioneer phase mm-hmm. by getting the secondary plants. And those were, for me, fine bladed bunch grasses. Fine bladed native bunch grasses. And so I would plant those and I would still get some pioneers for a year or two, but then I would mow them. Anytime anything got above my grass, I would knock it down. And I found that grass will outcompete almost everything at about five or six inches tall. So I wasn't mowing to make a lawn. I was just trying to knock off the other stuff. And then I would get my secondary and sometimes after two or three years, it looked beautiful, Greg. And then by the third or fourth year, that grass would start to thin itself out and magically the tertiary plants, the shrubs and the forbs and the other things would start to come back on their own. And I saw that happen over and over again. And I, it costs 90% less in time and energy and seeds than it does from people who are just trying to put back what they think was there before right. things were disturbed. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Great question, D. Great question. Feel free to email me, D. I'd love to uh, help however I can. I, you know, you're being humble though. Your experience has been incredible, and I know you know how to do a tremendous number of things that I can't even dream about. But we've had a long, long friendship over the years, and uh, it's really good to think about you. 
yeah. being there still. Yay. Well, and this is, you know, we just don't quit. To create no. the kind of change that we need to see here, you just don't quit. No, you don't. Greg, I woke up one day went in my little seed company at High Altitude Gardens, and I uh-huh. realized that, that over half of my customers, and I had 20,000 people in my database, over half of my customers have been around for 20 years or more. Wow. They, you know, that they had gotten onto my, or at least 10, between 10 and 20 years. Yeah. I mean, it's a tremendous, and, and D was one of those people. <laughs> That's nice. how I met D. Nice. Yeah. So she has some more here. She said the garlic mustard is all, almost gone. When I asked, she's been working to get rid of the garlic mustard, wondering how long the effects of the allo, allopathic compounds are in effect. So I'm assuming allopathic, uh, allopathic, that means that the suppression compounds? Is that what she's? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, allopathics use the broadest sense to mean that the plants have done something to the soil to keep competition down, uh-huh. keep other things growing that will compete against them. Cedar trees are notor- and redwoods are notorious oh, yeah. for this, right? Yeah. Nothing grows underneath them because they've changed the soil structure. D, for things like that, mustard, I found that the uh, effects don't last very long at all. They just don't. Once the plants are gone, that was never a factor in my replanting, especially grasses. Mm-hmm. I'll just tell you that. What I would do if I, if this time of year, if you pulled all the mustard out or whatever, and you're going to wait now till spring to plant, I would mulch everything if you could. Just cover it up and let that magic that happens throughout the winter, even on a microscopic level, you know, of having that soil covered, having the moisture in there, having whatever heat that comes from the sun or under the snow or whatever it takes. There's always stuff going on, and that would probably start to break down that so that by next spring you'll be fine. Cool. Excellent. Let's see here. Oh, uh, Richard from Buell, Idaho. Alan Savory teaches if you are in Africa and it's overgrazed, graze only when you will not kill the plant at its weakest stage. Old seeds came and recreated what the old people remembered. Well, there you go. Wow. Any, any thoughts on that? That's a Well, they, they, there was a botanist one time in southern Idaho for the BLM who was stationed in Shoshone. Really smart guy. I wish I remembered his name. And he did systematic. He was there for about five years. And he did systematic studies on the grazing in southern Idaho, which was, you know, 8 to 12 inches of rain uh-huh. a year, sagebrush desert, you know. And he, his own feeling, this was after five years, was that in that area, maybe once every seven years is when it should be grazed, at least, you know, at this point, with whatever damage that had been done there. That was just his guess. And so I think well, I'm trying to support what Alan Savory said. Yeah. You know, but but sometimes you, you have to have longer periods. And the problem with that is that that's not an economically viable, you know, activity. Nobody is can make a grazing operation work in southern Idaho and only use the pasture once every seven years. You know, right. that's just the reality of it. And so how we get ourselves out of that by maybe scaling the grazing way, way down to smaller, you know, family units. Uh-huh. And moving it around, moving it around larger areas, I don't know. And I know there's a lot of work being done on a lot of levels, and that there's been some really beautiful success stories of trying to bring back, you know, destroyed soil uh, yeah. using animals. And so, generally, you know, it gets caught up in a larger, more industrial discussion, and that tends to be a, a dead end 
<laughs> there's there's no way out of that now, you know. There's just no way to make it economically viable to save, you know, huge amounts of that environment. And so I don't know what we're going to do. We've got a lot of those those dilemmas coming up not knowing what we're going to do. Yeah. So let's just uh, touch on uh, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Tell us what you guys are up to and what you've got coming up in the new year. Well, yeah, maybe I'll I'll lead into it by saying it's been an incredible journey for me. You know, again, it's a really simple one, just mm-hmm. trying to find seeds from my own garden, you know, and want to live in an area of the world where everybody has them. Yeah. And I ran a bioregional seed company for 28 years to do that. And then I've been lucky enough to uh, transition into a nonprofit world where um, my major duty now is just teaching people how to grow and save their own seeds. And that's where our seed schools came from. And that's really what the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance is about. I was trying to explain it to somebody the other day, and I heard myself saying, you know, the goal of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance wasn't to start another nonprofit, to have another big institution that does fundraising and all the stuff. I mean, we're required to file a 990, and we have to have all our ducks in a row accounting-wise in order to take money, you know, in grants and stuff. And we have a Western SARE grant now from the federal government, and we're using all the tools. You know, and so we look like a nonprofit and we act like a nonprofit, but our goal is actually just to be an alliance, you uh-huh. know, to find, to educate and inspire new people to grow and save seeds wherever they are so they can take care of their own seeds and then help network them so that they can find each other and share wherever yep. they are. And that's really what our goal is. And so our seed schools are a really important part of that. You know, we've done a bunch of this year. And uh, and so if you want to learn more, and we've got, you know, Seed School Online, if you can't go anywhere. SeedSchoolOnline.com is where you find that at. Yeah. Yeah, we worked long and hard. That was a condensation of, well, the first Seed Schools were a condensation of 28 years of experience. We did uh, 10 days Seed Schools in the beginning, then shortened it to six days. Uh-huh. And then we short those down to one day. And then we uh, figured out how to distill the best out of all of that into seven lectures for the Seed School Online. So it really, boy, we earned that one, <laughs> didn't yeah. we, Craig? Yeah. Then we did it live, like I think, four times, you know, right. before we finally recorded it. So it's a highly evolved product. You know, I, I never know if these things are going to work, for sure. I mean, it's not like sitting in a classroom where you get immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. But I can say now that it's been out for a couple of years, I have people come up to me all the time and tell me how powerful and important Seed School Online was to them. And wow, you know, that that's how we get paid, I guess, because <laughs> when people say thank you. Yeah, exactly. Well, and as uh, Randy said, uh, we do live in a capitalist society. So we have to, you know, there's this balancing act of having to figure out how that works. Yeah. So. Well, and then there's one other thing. And so every other year in February, we try to get together all our alliance. You know, yep. we're going to invite all the seed stewards and all the, the uh, more than 100 seed school teachers that we've trained. We're calling everybody home to the second Mountain West Seed Summit this year. It's going to be in Santa Fe at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I think it's February 25th is the day. Uh-huh. Um, it's the arts. And you can go to the RockyMountainSeeds.org website to, oh, no, it is February 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. We're going to have a field trip on the 21st, and the summit itself is on the 22nd and 23rd. So go to RockyMountainSeeds.org, and you can uh, 
uh, read about that and sign up for that. And that will sell out again, probably. We're uh-huh. just going to have a, a great time in a really beautiful, beautiful place. And we just heard the other day that Charles Eisenstein is going to come and grace us with his presence there and cool. lead us in some some intense discussion. If you're familiar with his week work, um, I'm really excited about that. So, Awesome, awesome, awesome. I am going to do a shout-out uh, also. Uh, I do the Urban Farm podcast, and this this will show up on the Urban Farm podcast in the next 60 days or so as a one of our podcast episodes. But if you know anybody out there or if you are one of those people that are doing great work in this arena, I want to tell your story. Uh, the the whole point of the Urban Farm podcast is to get cool stories out to people and get you know get them inspired and motivated to do this kind of work. So if that's you, Greg at urbanfarm.org, shoot me an email and yeah, we'll uh, would love to so, share your story. How many have you done now? Oh, well, we have released. Uh, we had our official 400th episode with Elliot Coleman. Uh, oh my god i know that was amazing and it you know it almost uh, i believe he's in his early 80s he was amazing amazing to talk to yeah just still doing incredible work so we've had 400 episodes and i think we've had about 20 special bonus episodes which is you know the seed seed chat is one of the bonus episodes so you know in three years we've done 420 episodes of the podcast and yeah, and people are listening, you know, on, on a typical podcast, we get about 2,500 listens in the first 30 days, and we've eclipsed 1.3 million listens on our podcast. Uh-huh. It's huge. It's huge. People are engaged. They're interested. They're loving this stuff. So, Well, I, you know, you're the podcast with Michael Abelman. Oh, yeah. Uh, with Pen- Penny Livingston, um, the one, the first one you did with Toby Hemingway. Yeah. Those are all just classics for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Everyone check those out and email Greg and tell your story. Yeah. You know, this is uh, the podcast. I heard somebody again the other day say may end up being, you know, as we look back at this part of history, may mm-hmm. end up being the most important communication device developed during this era. Wow. That we're finally, we're finally able to tell each other stories directly. Uh-huh. You know, and that's what's happening. And I love to listen to them. So nice. Thank you for that, Greg. Thank Absolutely. you for the urban farm. Absolutely. Thank you for all the work you do. Yeah. Oh, I'll take it. I'll take it. And thank you, everybody, for joining us this evening and listening and, you know, doing the work that you're doing out in the world. Because I say that the most important work that we can be doing right now is figuring out where our food comes from and growing our own. So thank you, Bill, for joining us this evening. And as I like to say, farm out and we will catch you on the flip side. See you next time. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.